We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Al Jefferson, and you are listening to Setting the Pace on PacersTalk.net. Pacer fans, welcome back to another episode here of Studying the Pace on PacersTalk.net. I'm your host for today's show, Alex Golden, and joining me as always is the president of the Jermaine O'Neal Fan Club, my main man, Michael J. Focci. Focci, what's going on? Always happy to be here. We are coming off the schedule release day. You know the NBA does a good job of keeping us involved, so hey, it's just about two months to go. I'm I'm ready. Episode number 47, Focci. Who would have thought that we'd be on episode 47 just about nine months ago. We've been doing it that long. It's been a lot of fun, hasn't it? Oh, it's been a lot of fun, and the scary thing is we're just getting started, people. (laughs) There is a lot of good stuff ahead. Absolutely. So before we get going any further, I just want to do a little housekeeping here, and I want to let you guys know about our other co-host, Tyler Smith. Now, Tyler has been really dedicated to our podcast, but recently he has been given a lot of new roles. He's a new basketball coach. He's a new dad. He's a youth pastor. He covers the Pacers for Indy Sports Legends. I mean, the guy wears many hats. He's very busy. So he has decided to take a part-time role with the podcast. So you're still going to hear Tyler throughout the season, but it's just not going to be an every week thing. So I just wanted to clarify that if some of you guys are questioning, like, where's Tyler been at? Because I know he's not been as present on the podcast as you might have expected. So we want to say that we fully support Tyler and his decision to coach the JV team or varsity team actually out in Crawfordsville and just to, you know, what he's doing. We believe in him and we are glad that he's going to still be a part of the podcast when he can. But <laughs> of course, that's just a lot of hats to wear there, Fachi. So um, anyway, you want to tell the people what we're going to be talking about in today's segment? Sure. So guys, we have a fun segment tonight. You know, we if you've seen on Twitter, we've had a couple different, you know, name your, your starting five for the Pacers. Well, we were actually talking about name your Pacer killers. Who are the guys that have really stopped the Pacers from being able to, to hoist the big one, to win a championship? Who's really been the roadblock in the Pacers hosting that Larry O'Brien trophy? Absolutely. So Fachi, let me ask you this. When you look at this Pacers franchise, and they've had some really solid teams, made some nice Eastern Conference Finals runs. They made it to the Finals one year, you know. But they've been to a ton of Eastern Conference Finals. When you think of one person that has been in the way of the Pacers every single time they try to get to the NBA Finals, who is the first person that comes to mind? If we're going just fresh in my memory, I'm going off the bat, LeBron James. He's faced the Pacers five times, and he's won all five series, including two conference championship series. It just seems like it just never ends. I mean, when LeBron's been in the East, it's like just how it was with a certain GOAT. You have to get through him in order to get to the championship, and the Pacers have not been able to do that. I mean, we're also talking 
countless game winners. I mean, the game winner where Roy Hibbert should have been on the court. We're talking about the three-pointer just about two years ago. The, the goaltending, that was never called. It's like he's just always there stomping out some of the best Pacer teams. I mean, let's just go through a couple numbers. In 2012, he averages 30-11-6, shooting over 50%. In 2013, it goes to Game 7. He averages 29, 7.5, and 5.5 uh, assists per game. He's shooting over 50%. It just goes on and on. Most years shooting 30, uh, 30 points per game. And basically, in 2017, the sweep, he averages just shy of a triple-double. And in 2018, a seven-game series again. But LeBron's <laughs> there averaging 35, 10, and 8. It's just he's always been there to stop us, and thank God we sent him out west. Absolutely. I mean, it is nice to see LeBron out of the Eastern Conference, but if you look to that 90s Pacers team, I think that's probably the most talented Pacers team in franchise history is those teams over the 90s, and we talked with Al Jefferson last week, and he literally said that he thought if MJ would not have retired that he would have went to eight straight NBA Finals and probably won them all. I mean, Michael Jordan is 6-0 in NBA Finals and never went to a Game 7 in those NBA Finals. Absolutely insane. The Pacers faced the Bulls multiple times in that 90s playoff run, but they can never get past Michael Jordan in that Bulls team. And honestly, like you mentioned it earlier, one of the GOATs, Michael Jordan. He has been a Pacer killer for years and years to come. Obviously, we love the rivalry with the Bulls, but the Pacers just did not stand a chance because we're talking about the greatest player of all time, Michael Jordan. And then arguably, like you just mentioned, LeBron James is up there for greatest player of all time. If those are the two guys keeping you out of the NBA Finals, I mean, you have to understand, look, that is just because they are that good. But at the end of the day, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind, Michael Jordan and LeBron James are like 1A, 1B for Pacer killers of all time. And they're just, they're the goats for a reason. I mean, <laughs> you want to elaborate a little bit more on MJ's uh, role in keeping the pace out of the NBA Finals? Of course. I mean, let's just go back to the 98 Eastern Conference Finals. I mean, you're also talking about Jordan never went to Game 7 in the NBA Finals, but the Pacers took him to Game 7 in 98. I mean, we almost they ended. They won that game. They were up like 25-4. We, to 4. Yep. And they blew it, but we oh almost God. ended Jordan's Cinderella fairy tale ending. You know, <laughs> everyone was Jordan's little brother in the 90s. I mean, right. as great as Reggie Miller was and discussed as one of the best two guards, he was never going to be discussed as the number one two guard while MJ is there. Uh, so, I mean, let's just go on to just a few numbers. I mean, MJ averaged 30 points. Six and a half boards and five and a half assists in his career against the Pacers, shooting over 48%. In his 64 games played against Indiana, he scored the fourth most points uh, against the Pacers than any team. And ironically, his 69 blocks against the Pacers are the most against any team. He's doing it on both ends. So it's just like, how could you win there? And come on. I mean, you always knew that MJ was king in the 90s, and the Pacers, unfortunately, were never able to throw him. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's frustrating to hear this and talk about it, but at the end of the day, I mean, that Bulls team is one of the most iconic teams of all time. I mean, to say you couldn't get past them, but you took them to a Game 7, I mean, yeah, that's not like something you want to brag about, but that still like just shows you how talented the Pacers were, how good that team was, and how good that coaching staff was. But let's move on a little bit. We know who the two were. We knew for a fact these were number one, number two, but there's still two more spots to be filled for this Mount Rushmore Pacers killers and. When I look at teams that have been in the way of the Pacers, stick with the 90s, the New York Knicks, Fachi. Some team that you're very familiar with living in the New York area. You're a New York Mets fan. I'm sorry for you. but Oh, yeah. But uh, but anyway, they're actually playing pretty well right now. I'm pretty impressed. Yes, but, they are. They're hot. They're hot. <laughs> but they're the only hot team in New York right now. So let's talk about the Knicks a little bit. Obviously, they haven't been relevant for the past 20 years, but that 90s Knicks teams were unbelievable unbelievable rivalries with the Pacers and for the most part they were always in the way of the Pacers and the Pacers really couldn't get over the hump it's true I mean and when you're talking about those that Knicks Pacers rivalry I mean if you saw the winning time 30 for 30 special it was just like that was a rivalry that was like a a a fight every single night and the man who was almost like the boss at the end of the level was Patrick Ewing Mm -hmm. Patrick Ewing was just from from the very start when he came in the, in the NBA. I mean, you're talking about being you know the number one pick in a year where it seemed a little bit shady if the envelope might have been frozen. 
Pacers end up with Wayman Tisdale going number two. Just a big difference between Rest Ewing peace, and, and Tisdale. Yes, exactly. But it was Ewing who was just, from 1993 to 2000, the Pacers and the Knicks faced off six times. Mm. Three of them were in the conference finals. So you're talking about in game seven in 94, Ewing had 24 points, 22 rebounds, seven assists, and five blocks. Oh, man. I mean – that's that's like the ultimate like game over. You know, if you're playing a video game, you're facing Ewing, and he was just a force in the paint. So for his career, he averaged over 22 points, 10 boards, and 50% shooting against the Pacers. It just seemed like you always had to run into him in the 90s, and luckily the Pacers were able to get by him a few times. But the Pacers could have been that team in the 90s that went to you know many NBA Finals. Instead, you get just one appearance in 2000. Yeah, and I mean, Patrick Ewing is obviously the face of the Knicks. That's why we probably will have to put him on our Mount Rushmore of Pacer killers. But there were also some other Knicks that really made a huge dent in the Pacers not getting there. And John Starks is one of them. We know that Reggie Miller and John Starks went back and forth. And we know John Starks choked in the 8.9 second game. We know that John Starks headbutted Reggie Miller and Reggie Miller oversold it. I mean, we know all this stuff about John Starks. But we also know that John Starks was just a baller, and there were some games where he was just unstoppable. But I think the play that probably comes to most Pacer fans you know, nowadays is that four-point play with Larry Johnson, where they said Antonio Davis fouled him on the three-point shot, did not even touch him. Another screw job by the league trying to force that New York media down our throats and you know, give the big market the win. I mean, that's a narrative that Pacer fans had. I don't agree with it, but I do think that that was not a foul by Antonio Davis. It screwed the Pacers out of that game, and that's what got the Knicks to that championship in 1999. Now they lost to the Spurs. The Pacers ended up getting their revenge in 2000 for their only NBA Finals appearance, winning it in Madison Square Garden in Game 6. But, yeah, I mean, I think there's no doubt that we have to say Patrick Ewing is that third member of the Pacer Killers, and the biggest reason why is – not necessarily all the points that he put up, but just how much foul trouble he put Rick Smiths in. The Pacers' second-best player, arguably, at that time. Smiths could not stay out of foul trouble. Smiths could not guard Patrick Ewing. Patrick Ewing was just a killer. And even in the the classic call from Mark Boyle, ding-dong, the witch is dead, we know that Ewing, I mean, literally, wide-open finger roll right to the basket. The ball bounces two or three times and comes out. I mean, it was a miracle from the basketball gods that the Pacers ended up beating the Knicks in that series because, my goodness, that shot should have went in and would have went in 95% of the time. It's true, and Reggie needed to get the you know the monkey off of his back and get past the Knicks. And it's just if that finger roll went in, I mean, it would have been crushing. It just seemed that, especially when you're talking the late '90s. I mean, it's it's the Knicks that beat the Pacers in '99 to go to the finals. It's the Pacers that beat the Knicks in 2000 to go to the finals. So you always just had to face one of those, you know, the Knicks. But another one, a little honorable mention: John Starks was just a pesky guy on those teams. <laughs> I mean, 23 career playoff games against the Pacers. Some of his best years were were just right when the Pacers-Knicks rivalry was at its height. I mean, Starks, an all-star in 94, all-defensive selection, 93, six-man, 97. The battles against Reggie, just anything he could do. I was looking it up, and coincidentally, the second most points that John Starks averaged against anyone was against the Pacers Ugh. at 14.8. So... He was just a pesky individual. Absolutely. So do you think that we should move on to a new team, or do you think there's another player out there that possibly could be in consideration for this fourth spot? You know, there is one more player, because when you're talking about how, you know, getting stopped from basically winning a championship, how are you going to forget about Shaq? I mean, you're in in 2000 our lone trip to the NBA Finals, and you have to go up against not just Shaq, MVP Shaq. Right. This is Shaq at, like, the height of his game. Like, how are you supposed to get by him? Just look at this. One of the most dominating NBA Finals stat lines that you've ever even heard of, Shaq literally had, he averaged a whopping 38 points, 17 boards, and three blocks per game, shooting over 60%. And when, when when that's not even enough, I mean, Shaq from the free throw line, he had 93 free throw attempts in six <laughs> games. 
I looked at it because I thought it could have been fake. All right, the, the second most on the team was Glenn Rice with twenty free throw oh attempts. Oh my it, gosh! A seventy-three free throw, you know, attempt this difference. I mean, it's goodness. just ridiculous. So, and even Kobe. I mean, sure, you had to face Kobe, but it's a young Kobe. Kobe averaged fifteen points in that NBA Finals. So Shaq more than doubled that. I mean, right. you, you can't beat that. And the thing with Shaq, like, even baby Shaq on the Orlando Magic kept the Pacers from getting to the NBA Finals against the Houston Rockets. We talk about being wrong and the witch is dead, but it wasn't for the Eastern Conference Finals. It was for the semifinals where the Pacers went on to play the Orlando Magic. We know the infamous Rick Smith's game winner over Trey Rollins that we talked about on our quiz a couple episodes ago that uh, yep. we didn't know the answer to. But at the end <laughs> of the day, <laughs> you know, like, Shaq has just kind of been – a little guy that's always been in the way of the Pacers, and now that I don't necessarily think that his presence on the Magic and the Lakers can really say that that some other players didn't, because I think there's a team in Detroit that we need to talk about that definitely puts up a fight for keeping the Pacers from reaching their ultimate success. But I do think Shaq would be the fifth person for me, if you're looking at this, because just how dominant he was on that Lakers team, just how dominant he was in that Orlando series. And, you know, it was not too long after that Orlando series, he left, went to the Lakers. So the fact that we played up against him in his prime with Kobe, you know, really coming into his prime. I mean, I remember that game where Shaq fouled out and Kobe won it. And I think it was overtime or double overtime. It was And I think Reggie and Jalen, like, both were playing great, but it just, like, was not enough. I mean, Kobe was coming into his own, too. I mean, that was just a really, really great team. So, yeah, I mean, I think Shaq should definitely be considered. But I do want to talk about these Detroit Pistons, man, because – the infamous brawl that changed the entirety of the NBA. Not just the Pacers, not just the Pistons franchise, but the entirety of the way the NBA was ran and how it was looked upon. One of the worst moments in NBA history, the malice of the palace. There's no way that starts if Ben Wallace does not just calm down. I understand. Rick Carlisle should have pulled his guys out. Ronald Tess shouldn't have fouled him hard. But you know what? Ben Wallace, you got to calm down a little bit. The fact that, he, I mean, literally, he does not get enough credit for what he started in Detroit. And that, to me, is my pick for the number one pacer killer is Ben Wallace. But there's definitely some other players on that roster that I know you have that you think should be up for consideration. Sure thing. But I got to say, middle school Mike Focci hated Ben Wallace more than <laughs> anyone I've ever hated in my whole entire life. And I still, I still feel that hate because just what you talked about before, if he doesn't react that way, then – the Pacers, they're the team to beat. I mean, they're the one that everyone's looking at. They're coming off the best record in the NBA. But even before that, they beat the Pacers in the Eastern Conference Finals. I mean, it was Ben Wallace was that guy where, like, when you're young and you're watching him play basketball, you're like, he can't even score. But he did everything else. That was right. the thing. I mean, he was an undersized center. He's 6'9", but he's still pulling down, like, 20 rebounds, giving you, like, Six points per game, but the smothering defense. I mean, I was going through a couple of the box scores against the Pacers. In 2005, he had 21 points and 19 – 21 rebounds and 19 points. And it was like, where did this even come from? (laughs) You know, I mean, he was was taking down Jermaine. He was just smothering him. It was just – it was rough. So I always just felt like there was always just Ben Wallace being – just a pesky, hard-nosed defensive guy. I mean, and then he, even think about this. He didn't just play with Detroit. He also played with Cleveland and the Bulls. So the Pacers saw plenty of Ben Wallace right. throughout his career in the division. Absolutely. But another player that's got to be on this Mount Rushmore for during that time, Rip Hamilton. Richard Hamilton, I always felt like, was a, like a poor man's Reggie Miller, the way he'd get around these screens and just – he would always lose a defender, come around, hit a quick three. In the 2004 Eastern Conference Finals, he averaged basically 24 points per game. He had some of his best games against the Pacers. And it just seemed like countless clutch jumper after jumper after jumper. And and it's just it frustrated me so much that Richard Hamilton was just – and he's wearing the mask the whole time. Right. You know, like even when the nose is healed, it just became his thing. And those are two players, man. I would lose my mind over those two players. Absolutely. I mean, we just saw the respect that Reggie had for Rip, too. And you said that he was averaging 24 points in that Eastern Conference Finals. I mean, the teams together were maybe averaging 150 points together. I mean, those were some low-scoring of games. It's just kind of funny to think about that 24 points 
in today's NBA is like, oh, that's a pretty good number. Like, he must have done a pretty good job. Like, no, that was like 35% of the team's points yeah. because it was so low scoring. But, you know, I think if you look at any play in Pacers-Pistons playoff history, the play that comes to mind is the Tayshaun Prince block on Reggie Miller. It was one of the most devastating blocks of all time. Reggie was at the tail end of his career, should have dunked the ball. You know, Reggie thought he was going to be clear. I think the whole entire fan base thought Reggie had this. And then Tayshaun Prince, with his arms dangling all the way down to his ankles, just takes like three steps, and he's like right there just to block the shot. I mean, just a devastating moment, and it changed the whole entire you know outcome of the series, just that block. And honestly, like that play to me probably means more than anything Rip Hamilton did. As great as Hamilton was, we could contain him, I think, and we could match that with points from other players. But at the end of the day, that block just changed the entire trajectory of that playoff series. It really did. If Reggie makes that, the Pacers go up 2-1 to one in that series. Uh, I mean, it, it meant everything. And just that play, to this day, I cannot watch that replay. First of all, the score, just as you mentioned before, it's disgusting. I believe it's like 69-67. There's like 40 seconds left. Uh, oh, I mean, yeah, I know. it was just horrible. But that play... I mean, Tayshawn Prince's arms were just like, like, how do you even get like that? His <laughs> arms were so long. Right, right. You know, Reggie doesn't even think that he's on his, like, Tayshawn's even in the picture. You know, maybe even in the same half court. But it's it just, he blocks <sighs> it, it changes the whole series, and it changes everything. Because the Pistons, I mean, they, they go on, and I mean, they go to the NBA Finals eventually. It's just... That, that team where you never know. I mean, that, that was the year where you know, the Lakers are just coming apart at the seams. I mean, who knows? Maybe you could have stole one in the NBA Finals. Maybe, yeah, but for, for that, all we'll know is that Tayshaun came up with with a play that just forever kind of set both teams in different directions, if you think about it. All right, so we talked about three candidates. Fachi, I need your final answer. Who do you want in your Mount Rushmore or the Mount Rushmore we're coming up with for uh, your final pace of killer? Hundred, well, uh, are you talking about just who's my overall like the, the who's four your guys? Last that one we got, we got MJ, we've got LeBron, and we've got Patrick. Who's that fourth member of your Mount Rushmore? I'm putting Ben Wallace in. I'm doing yeah, it. I agree. I agree. You know that brawl. I mean, it just is such an ugly thing to talk about. And honestly, like I'm not just being a homer here. Like Ron Artest definitely did not need to go in the stands. He needed to control himself. Probably shouldn't have been laying on the table. Let's be honest. I mean, I know Ron was a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, but like Jermaine mentioned, he had mental health issues, and that's something that's very serious and a uh, very important thing that's in today's NBA. I mean, they're even requiring teams to have somebody to help with mental you know, health. So it's just one of those things where I just feel like Ben Wallace does not get enough blame for what he did and his part for the brawl. I mean, I think it was six games is what he got. That is a joke. Yeah. He should have got at least oh, double yeah. digits. And honestly, I mean, it was it's been I mean it was ugly for like years after that where Pacers were even afraid to go into their locker room because of threats. So I mean, just one of the most ugly scenes. But I think Ben Wallace tore apart that team, and you know the the Pacers had their own doing in it. But I think that if he never gets that mad about it, we're looking at a team that's possibly in the championship against the Lakers, like you mentioned. It's just one of the most frustrating things that's ever happened to this franchise, especially Reggie Miller, who stayed loyal to this team and had a great chance of getting his first NBA Finals. I, it's, a, it's a shame, you know, when I had an opportunity to connect with Steven Jackson, he referenced that that was Reggie's last year, and he, he always felt that blame afterwards of what happened, that Reggie was never able to get that ring, and that was it for him. So I'm definitely putting Ben Wallace on there, and uh, man, uh, he at middle school me, they, he was ready to fight Ben Wallace <laughs> at any time. And I'll tell you one thing, I wouldn't have won. Absolutely. So there you have it, folks. The setting the pace, Mount Rush, a pacer killers goes to Patrick Ewing, Ben Wallace, Michael Jordan, LeBron James. Thanks so much for listening to that segment. We're going to jump now into our guest for the show, Spencer Percy, and talk a little bit about Jeremy Lamb and what we can expect from him coming into the season. Joining us right now here on the Setting the Pace podcast is my good friend Spencer Percy from BuzzBeat Radio. Spencer, what's going on, man? Hey, guys. Appreciate you having me. Absolutely, absolutely. So, of course, if you're, if you're familiar with Spencer, you know that he covers the 
Charlotte Hornets and the Pacers went out and signed one of the former Charlotte Hornets from last year's team, Jeremy Lamb. So Spencer's going to be talking with us a little bit today about Jeremy Lamb and what we can expect for him next season on the Pacers roster. So before we even started, you said you hated to see Jeremy Lamb go. So what was just something that you right off the bat just loved about Jeremy Lamb's game? You know, he's not afraid to score the ball moments where, you know, a, a team needs it. Charlotte certainly had a lot of moments, especially when Kimball was off the floor, you know, in the past few seasons here where they would need somebody who would be able to get a bucket. And, and that's Jeremy. You know, he is. He's not a, he's not an electric scorer. He's not, I, I would, I would say really a nuclear athlete that just gets to the rim and does a lot of damage from there. But he's, he's a very crafty player. Um, he's really improved shooting the ball from the outside uh, off the dribble, especially. And, you know, I think one of the things that Pacers fans will see that was my favorite aspect of his game, he makes up for, like, the lack of explosion and ability to get to the rim with this really silky smooth little, like, mid-range floater game. Uh, it, it's it's really a big part of his arsenal uh, to score the basketball. So, mm-hmm. but, but look, like, Charlotte, you know, their depth was – nothing to write home about last year, you know, behind Kemba and, and Jeremy really was the second scoring punch um, for the Hornets. And, you know, it was a team that was in the playoff hunt really until the last week of the season. So I think that that should mean something. And I think Indiana, you know, got a guy who, you know, we'll, we'll see where they think he fits, whether, you know, he's a shooting guard or if they want him to play up a position, you know, a small forward, which I think he can do with his length. I mean, Jeremy's got a seven-foot wingspan, but I think he can serve a few roles for the Pacers. Uh, you know, he can he can be that six-man scoring, um, you, you know, volume scoring guy off the bench, which has probably been his traditional role in the NBA. Uh, or, you know, I think he can start for him. So I, I think the Pacers really got a good player here. Um, also has some defensive chops too. A little, you know, lackadaisical here and there with his focus, but again, a seven-foot wingspan, average athlete. Um, I think average a little over a steal a game last year. You guys got a nice player here, Spencer. I'm very excited about the Jeremy Lamb addition to the team. When you mentioned coming off the bench, I mean, obviously in the last two years he started a lot more compared to early on in his career, but. If he wasn't filling in for Oladipo as the starting two guard for the Pacers to start the season, could you see him as a potential maybe top three, six man of the year if he was solely coming off the bench? Uh, I mean, yeah, I think he I – th- I thought really the year before last um, he belonged in that conversation. Uh, I mean, that's the year he really improved his game in Charlotte and, and wasn't starting – exclusively yet um so yeah absolutely i think so i mean i think it helps that he's in indiana he's with a really good system um you know i i love plugging brogdon in with oladipo and tj warren and jeremy lamb like all these guys are they can they can play up and down positions right i just love indiana's versatile positional versatility in the backcourt so yeah i mean if that's the role that, that the pacers ask jeremy to play a six man He's proven he can come in and score. And if the Pacers win, you know, 50-ish, maybe more than that game, it's like he's got to be in that conversation, right? I think so. Yeah, so let me ask you this here, Spence, because the Pacers the last couple of years have really built this identity based on their culture. And, you know, we had Al Jefferson on last week, and he said that playing in Charlotte the year they made it to the playoffs a couple years ago was like his favorite team to play on just because of the culture. And I know Jeremy was a part of that team, so – now that Jeremy's here, do you think that he's just going to really help this culture and continue to help it grow into what this Pacers organization loves? You know, I think, you know, Jeremy had a he had a little bit of a reputation early in his Charlotte days right before they gave him the three-year, $21 million extension after they got him from Oklahoma City for basically nothing in a trade and I guess, what was 2014 or 15, you know, he had a little bit of a reputation of a guy who – had all the talent in the world. They really didn't want to work that hard. And I think that over the time, over his time in Charlotte, he proved that to not be true. Um, I think there's more in Jeremy Lamb that has not been unlocked yet. I think there's a better player in there. Um, but he was a great locker room guy. Uh, you know, I know him and Kimball were very close. Obviously, they played together at UConn as well. Um, so, so they had some uh, a little bit of background together. But, yeah, I mean, he's, he's a team-first guy, and, and he's, he's got a big personality. 
Um, I think he's a little bit of a goofball in the locker room with the media, which will, which will mesh well anywhere in the NBA, right? But when it's time to get serious, you know, Jeremy is he's a professional. So I, I, he's, he's a guy that's now a veteran. He's no longer, you know, the guy we've been waiting on to grow up. I mean, again, I think there's a little bit more in his game that can be unlocked, but he's a professional now. He's an NBA veteran. And I seriously, I think any any of the 30 locker rooms would be pretty lucky to have a guy like him. And he's willing to serve just about any role that I think you ask him to play. And that's really important for a team like Indiana that kind of already has that culture, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely. I mean, you were touching on how he's just pretty well-developed across the board. I mean, he's, he's a real pretty solid three-point shooter. Yeah, average about 36% for the last two years. Great free throw shooter. And he's coming off a season where he averaged basically 15 and 5. The Pacers are priding themselves on their depth this year. But is it safe to call him potentially maybe the X factor of this team? I mean, I'm thinking if Jeremy Lim, if Jeremy Lamb has it going, this team's going to be able to take that next step and get out of the first round. Yeah, I mean, I, again, like it's in there. I'm telling you, he's got a lot of potential. He's improved that outside shot. The last piece of his game, especially offensively, that I'd really like to see flourish is his ability to get all the way to the rim consistently. Um, and that's just something we have not seen uh, consist, you know, consistently from Lamb. And, and I think that's just really has nothing else to do. He's just a little bit of lack of athleticism. Again, he's not a nuclear athlete. He's a very smooth athlete. He's a long-striding athlete, and that's why he has to use those, those uh, creative floaters every now and then to, to score. But I, I just think it depends on what role, you know, McMillan sees him playing for Indiana offensively. If it's starting shooting guard, a guy that you need to get 16 points a night, um, you know, or, or even starting small forward. I mean, I think he can play up the position next to Oladipo. Um, and you've got a guy that's 20 plus a night and then Jeremy is 15 or six, uh, 15 or 16 points a night. Like, yeah, he's absolutely the X factor then. But, you know, if he's going to be the sixth or seventh man, I think that. That's probably more the idea that Indiana really had is just like you said, depth. Uh, you know, let, let's give ourselves some insurance policies. If if we do take on some injuries, which obviously they had to battle through last year, um, and Lamb can step in from that six or seven man role and, and really start for us and, and, and you know keep keep the boat above water, if you will. So, so yeah, I just I love that he can do a lot of different things for the Pacers, and uh, and depth is going to be. It's going to be what makes makes or break their season, I think, next year, and he can do nothing but uh, but help that. So we know that when Oladipo comes back, that the the rotation will probably have Jeremy Lamb being the sixth man for this Pacers roster. So I just want to ask you, looking at this team, you know, I'm not sure how much you've evaluated the Pacers off season. I know that the big moves you've mentioned, but like they brought in uh, Justin Holiday, they've got Aaron Holiday off the bench, along with McDermott, uh, the rookie in Goga Bataze, TJ Leaf, you know. Throwing him into that mix, I feel like the Pacers might play a little bit more up-tempo with their second unit where they're going to be a little bit slower with Sabonis and Turner in that first unit. Which style of play do you think benefits Jeremy Lamb better, a slower pace or a faster pace? Uh, I mean, that's a good question. I, You know, I think probably a slower pace. Okay. Again, he's a smooth athlete. Like When he gets the ball and he has space, he's going to get to his scoring spot. Uh, he's right. just the guy. He's just he's got the length. He, he usually has more length than the guy guarding him. So he's going to be able to get to spots where he scores the ball. Um, my thing with the Pacers is this: you know, I, I I worry just a little bit. There's one thing I look at the roster and it leaves me wanting a little bit more. I, I wish they had another another ball handler that could consistently go by his his man. Right? Like I think Oladipo can do that. Um, you know, I think Aaron Holiday, obviously, if he's healthy and, 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 and taking a step in the right direction, can do that. Uh, I like the TJ McConnell pickup, although it's kind of on the margins, but it matters because that guy can go by you. But I think that's what we might look back on the playoffs for Indiana and say, God, if they just had one other dude that could go get a bucket and really get by his defender consistently, that would have been big. Because Brogdon struggles in that area. I think Lamb struggles in that area. Again, he can get to his spots. But, you know, he, he doesn't have that burst where he's by you, he's forcing the second defender, and now the ball is flying around. So, um, you know, he'll serve a role for Indiana. Again, he will. He's a very creative basketball player. But that's the one thing when I, I kind of look at the roster that, that leaves me scratching my head saying, hmm, I wonder if they have enough burst offensively. 
Yeah, no, that is a good point, and that does remain to be seen. But something that Alex and I have debated a little bit is when Oladipo comes back healthy, for the starting small forward spot, who do you think would fit this team better, Jeremy Lamb or TJ Warren? Now, TJ Warren played basically 99% of his minutes at power forward last year, and I kind of like Lamb a little bit more at the two guard than the three. But in my opinion, I feel like Jeremy Lamb might fit this team a bit better and can adapt. Am I wrong to think that, or what are your thoughts? So I think this is probably one of the most interesting questions for this roster because, you know, Warren, you obviously look at him on paper. He's taller than Lamb. He looks yep. like more of your prototypical small forward in the NBA, mm-hmm. right? 6'8". But, yeah, exactly, 6'8". You know, he's got, you know, and Lamb's, you know, 6'5", 6'6". Um but Jeremy Lamb plays way bigger than six five six six. He's a great defend. He's a great defensive rebounding, um, you know, backcourt player. Um, you know, in Charlotte, they always ask him not always, but you know, seventy five percent of the time, eighty percent of the time, to play as shooting guard because they needed that scoring punch from him. I really think that Malcolm Brogdon, Victor Oladipo, Jeremy Lamb, I think that could be a pretty dangerous and lethal. The first three guys in a starting unit in the Eastern Conference, because he's such, he has so much length, which really helps him on defense, and he's a great defensive rebounding um, player. You, you know, so like, yeah, he's six five. They're listed at that, but but he plays so much bigger, and that's where I wondered: is Jeremy actually better suited for this team to start at the small four position, and then late in games, you know, if they want to, they want to go a little bit bigger with Sabotis and Turner and slot him down to the shooting guard. Fine. You know, and let Warren be that six-man who can kind of run the show. And I think Warren's better – I think he's better to run an offense than Lamb is. So so that's kind of why I think maybe he's the better fit as the six-man off the bench because he can go get a bucket. Um, They they have similar games offensively, but maybe I I think I like Warren a little bit more to play that six-man role. And, again, like I'm just trying to get people to understand, don't look at Jeremy Lamb – on a put, you know, on a on a player card and see six five and say he can't play small forward. I'm telling you, when you see this dude on a basketball court, he's not going to look like like he's six five. Um, he's going to look more like he's six seven, which is what I think he plays like defensively. Yeah. So the last question for me here about Jeremy Lamb, just to kind of wrap up my thoughts on this and get your opinion, is looking at him. You know, we've heard a lot of great things, but we saw that he signed relatively quick with the Indiana for a pretty reasonable deal. You know, three years, thirty. $31 million, $31.5, something like that. If, you know, all the great things you're saying about him, why do you feel like there weren't as many suitors out there for him, and why don't you think he got a bigger contract? I mean, guys like Corey Joseph and, you know, um, Thad Young all got, you know, much more money than him. So why do you think that that was the case? Yeah, I, that's a good question, too. You know, I, this is kind of what I expected. Um, Lamb to get, I think, when it was all said and done, just because there were so many big name guys on the market, and I, and I, that money was going to dry up. It was always going to dry up people quicker than people realized, which ended up happening. Um, and you know, Lamb's just—he's a—he's a little bit of a specialist, right? Like he—he he has a lot of potential. And like I said earlier, I, I think there's another player in there. I think he can take one more step. But I think most of the NBA probably says, looks at him as a player and scouts and say, yeah, we kind of know who this guy is. He's a nice player. He averaged 15 points and, you know, and, and, and almost six rebounds and whatever, you know, two assists and, and barely turned the ball over for, for a really, really thin Hornets team last year and almost 30 minutes a game. That's fine. But really what he is is he's a specialty, um, uh, you know, kind of player on, on a playoff team, on a true Eastern or Western Conference playoff team. So, I think the market was always a little bit limited for him. And, um, you know, Charlotte, technically, they could have kept him. You know, once they knew that that, that uh, Kimmel was leaving, which was way early in the game, actually before free agency officially started, um, there was plenty of room to keep him around. They had his full bird rights. But, you know, Charlotte decided, hey, <clears throat> we're pivoting. We're going in a different direction here. We're getting younger. We're, we're moving on from, from the Kimba era and everything that had to do with it. So, which is fine. So, I, you know, but I, it is a good question. I think there were probably – a lot more teams that were interested in his services than we'll ever know about. But mm-hmm. Indiana's super lucky that they got him. Super lucky on a great deal. Uh, they, they definitely were because we were talking about last week on the podcast, he signed for basically the same amount of money that Al Jefferson signed with the Pacers for years ago. So 
you know, it's yeah, pretty crazy. Yeah. You know, you would think that you know, these these contracts are always topping each other, but for essentially thirty million over three years, that's going to look like pennies in, in just a couple of years. But you know, Jeremy Lamb is someone who he finished last season. While April is a small sample size, he was averaging basically a hair under twenty points per game, shooting fifty four percent over forty four percent from three. Really finished the season strong. It's not a guarantee that he'll be able to get the same amount of minutes per game in Indiana. But is he someone who you think can potentially have a career year? Or is it more moving forward of shooting career-high percentages in a little bit of reduced minutes? Yeah, I mean, like, I think it depends, again, what's that role that he's going to need to play? Is he going to play with the ball in his hands a lot, which I think is what he would what he would choose, right? Or is he going to be have to kind of morph into more of a spot-up shooter uh, in Indiana's offense? I think it's going to probably end up being a little bit of both because of what I said earlier. I think they, I think the Pacers are maybe just one creator short. Um, you know, that would give Lamb. They had one more guy who really played with the ball on his hands a lot. Is going to play twenty plus minutes a night. I think Lamb's more of a you know a secondary guy. You know, catch and go, go by the defender who's recovering or a spot up shooter. But I think he's going to have to play both roles. So I, I honestly could see it going both ways. I know that's like not a exciting answer. But I, I think there's a possibility that he could have a career year, yes. You know, especially if Indiana, you know, knock on wood, this doesn't happen, but they, they suffer another injury. I'm telling you, you're going to see that Lamb can he can go out there and get buckets every night. But if they're healthy, you know, they ask him to step in and play, you know, what, 24, 25, 26, whatever, minutes a night, then he's just going to come in and give that extra punch that wins you that extra, you know, five or six games that are within a few possessions. Like, I think that is the kind of player he is in the NBA why he serves such a vital role so all right spencer well i gotta ask you how excited are you to watch terry rogier for the next 82 games next season <laughs> uh well well you know i i, I will say this I, I defended that trade more than uh than most nationally and even you know here in charlotte i only because there was no way for the hornets to get anything back for Kemba once he decided he was going to Boston until until they were able to, to pull that deal. So well, well they could have traded him before the over... trade deadline. Well right. I'm just talking yeah, I'm talking about like in the <laughs> moment when free agency's right there. No, I could I could we could go on for hours about the incompetency of, of Jordan and Kupchak not trading him at the deadline, but but that's a, a sunk cost at this point. But no, I mean like it's an overpay, but it's an overpay for a twenty five year old guy who has proved it in the at the biggest stage, you know, in the biggest stage in the playoffs. Um, you know, it, it's probably going to end up looking like a bad contract. But here's the deal: it's three years. He's 25 years old. Charlotte's going to have 50 million dollars in cash space next summer. It, it's not that bad of a deal for them, right? Like it, it's at the last second we find out Kim is walking. He's not going to take this super low ball deal. And this this is we can get this guy, this 25 year old guy, but we got to overpay him. Okay, let's do it. You know, three years, whatever. Like. So I understand that the optics of it are like, oh, gosh, Charlotte doesn't know what they're doing, which they don't. But <laughs> but in the moment with a gun to your head, there's nothing you can do. At least you got something. And that was that was really my only point. I mean, yeah, there's probably a 2% chance this guy turns into an all-star. But what if he does? Yeah. Right? Like, what if yeah, he does? I, mean, I think and, that's and the only, only point a three-year deal. <laughs> it is the only point I have. And, you know, so I don't know play it. I mean, I'm the one who has to, uh, <laughs> to cover this team and, and – and, and yeah, well, you know, I have to talk myself into something here, so that's why that's what I'm going to pitch to everybody. To so let's just wait and see a little bit. Yeah. When we're thinking about guards that maybe didn't work out in Charlotte, is there a part of you that misses Lance Stevenson at all? Uh, zero, zero, zero <laughs> part. Of it. There's not a fiber in my body that misses that guy. I don't blame <laughs> you. That was a horrible relationship, but. Uh... All right, Spencer, we're going to let you go. I know you got a lot of things going on tonight. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about Jeremy Lamb, and uh, hopefully we didn't make fun of you too much. I know the Pacers play Charlotte here relatively soon once the season starts, so looking forward to that matchup, and hopefully that will help us get another W on the, the win column. Sounds good, guys. Yeah, I appreciate you having me anytime. All Thanks right. a lot, Spencer. See you, Spence. Bye. Right. Pacer fans, I encourage you guys to check out PacersTalk.net where we have launched a brand new website earlier this summer where we're covering the team going forward. You can look at the roster, see what new players are on the team. You can check out the articles we have. Our YouTube channel is on there as well. Make sure you guys check it out. And, of course, you can hear all of our podcasts on PacersTalk.net. 
Let's get back to the show. What's going on, Pacer fans? Welcome back to Setting the Pace. We're here to talk about the schedule release that happened on Monday. The Pacers absolutely killed it with their Twitter release, uh, doing a little Netflix cameo there. It was really cool to see what they came up with. Fachi, when you look at this schedule, my man, what stood out to you when you first looked at it? Well, what was very obvious was the fact that the six nationally televised games that we have are start in February, which is obviously done on purpose because they don't believe Oladipo is going to be back early enough. So six nationally televised games, that's half as much as last year. But also the first 11 games, I thought, pretty good. I mean, we're going to play only two playoff teams in that stretch, which the Detroit Pistons, we played three times in the first 11 games. I thought that was kind of weird. I mean, sure, they'll be a little bit improved, but I'm not scared of the Pistons by any means. So for the first 11 games, I feel pretty good because obviously Victor will not be suiting up for those games. That's a given. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of weird. We played Detroit three times in the first nine games. I can't remember the last time that happened. Uh, We have three games in March, or February, excuse me, with Toronto. We have a home-and-home with Toronto on February 5th and February 7th, and then we play them again on February 23rd. Kind of weird to play three teams in the same month. So, yeah, I, I think that we also have, like, a home-and-home home with Minnesota as well. Um, I can't remember where that's at, but I think it's just kind of crazy that we have two home-and-homes like that with uh, with an opponent. So, kind of cool. I haven't really seen that before, but I like it. Uh, a little different. I kind of like having that little series, a little bit of chippiness, where you can kind of get more familiar with your with your opponent and not just be like, oh, just another game in a regular season. But, yeah, um, I, I think the biggest question mark for this schedule release was, what do you prefer? Do you f- prefer an easier schedule? for the first half when you don't know when Oladipo is going to be back and then a heavier one when he is back, or do you like it the opposite way? So if you're looking at that, I mean, what were you hoping for an easier schedule to start out? I mean, sure that that's always nice because, you know, if you're going to be without your best player, it is nice to have a little bit of an easier schedule, but Hey, if you're going to backload it, that's fine because Oladipo will be back. I, I feel fine about that. There's no, like overly intense month like last year's March where the Pacers just ran into playoff team after playoff team. And then, you know, obviously there was no Oladipo. So we were just left out there to just kind of, you know, fight for our lives. And that didn't work out. Of course, you're going to have a hard stretch. There's a pretty tough stretch um, coming from about November 17th, ironically my birthday, into about um, like late December. I think that's a pretty tough stretch over there so uh it's just kind of like hey you gotta roll with the punches um also there's a three-week stretch um from late january to late february where the pieces only play one road game so it evens out you know i think the schedule was something that seems pretty fair overall the pacers have 11 back-to-backs on the season the the league average is 12 and a half so that's a win and i just think the nba has done a better job with there's no four games in five nights or eight games in 12 nights, which was a thing of the past, which is pretty ridiculous. Well, yeah, but what did, what did you think about the like how it was set up? I mean, were you wanting to be a little bit easier for Oladipo when he comes back, or did you think that you wanted a harder schedule when he came back? Sure. I mean, it would be nice if it's a little bit easier when he comes back because, guys, he's not just going to come back and play you know, every game, every minute. They're going to rest him on back-to-backs, I would imagine. So I'm fine with if the back end, like you're talking March, April, is tough. you got to figure he's going to be at – should be close to full strength by then. Yeah, I mean, I guess – I guess for me, like honestly, like I ha- I see both sides of it because like yeah. if you have a harder schedule at first, you know you might not get the confidence that you want, but at the same time you get the tougher opponents over with. But I was looking at, I think I was calculating this when I was looking at the schedule. I think nineteen of the first thirty four games before the new year starts in January, uh, nineteen of those thirty four games are against playoff teams from last year. So. You know, that's over half that's going to be a, a former playoff team from last year. So that's last year's team. Obviously, teams have changed. You know, that's all kind of like whatever. But at the end of the day, I mean, the Pacers have a pretty favorable schedule. It's really balanced all throughout. It's not, like you said before, overwhelmingly horrible in one month. Like, remember March last year? Like, the Pacers, oh, it was so hard to watch them. I was, like, not even excited for the playoffs because I thought we were seeing their true colors. But – with the yeah. way this roster is built, I think it's going to take some time for them to really develop that chemistry. And 
one of the most interesting things that's not being talked about is if without Oladipo, the starting five heading to the next season, there's only one starter from last year, Miles Turner. That is wild, man. It is. It definitely is. I mean, that's going to take an adjustment, but that's where I feel good that the first 11 games off the bat aren't really that tough. Give the team uh, some time to to really gel a little bit. I think it's really interesting how many divisional opponents uh, were playing so early on in the season. I think it's like four of the first five or four of the first like six or seven games are divisional opponents, obviously, because we're playing Detroit so much for some reason. But, <laughs> in, in, I mean, in the end, you know, that, that could help. I, I think that'll give us enough time to gel and get the team together because, sure, while it's a starter, you still have Sabonis in there who is starting for the first time. Like, Miles was the only starter, but... You know, I think we have a good enough team where these guys have been starters elsewhere and are prepared to to step up. Yeah, so let's take a quick look at these road trips. There's one in November going into December. We're at Philadelphia, at Memphis, at Oklahoma City, at Detroit, at New York. Um, Usually there's that post-Thanksgiving road trip that's out west, but this one seems pretty manageable. I mean, Philadelphia might be a loss, but... You know, Memphis is not going to be good next year. OKC is going to be mediocre at best next year. Maybe good, but not great. Uh, Detroit, they're not going to be great next year. They'll be okay. New York's not going to be that good. And then you look over at the the January road trip, which is a little bit tough. They are at Denver, at Utah, at Phoenix, at Golden State, at Portland. So really the only game there that you feel like you should get the win is at Phoenix. The other four are up for grabs. And then the last five-game road trip that they have is at Cleveland, at San Antonio, at Milwaukee, at Chicago, at Dallas. So, like, none of these road trips besides the January one seems, like, excruciatingly, like, tough. So, honestly, like, I'm cool with whatever. But uh, looking at those road trips, I mean, do you feel pretty confident in those? I mean, hey, the NBA is very well balanced this year. Outside of just about Phoenix and maybe, like, Washington and Charlotte, I mean, every team looks, you know, like a tough game. I mean, oh, the, the Knicks. The Knicks do not look good. I got to throw that out there. So the, not any game. You can't just circle any game and go, oh, we're going to win this game. A few of them you, you feel more confident than others. But, yeah, sure. I mean, there, you got you to gotta be prepared to know that there's going to be a lot of battles on this schedule and take the good with the bad. And like I mentioned, you know, when we're on the road for a while, we kind of make up for it for – uh, that January to February stretch going into the All-Star break, the Pacers are home for, I want to say, like 24 straight days. So that's going to be uh, that's gonna be pretty big to because last year, I mean, the Pacers, they looked, I thought they looked pretty tired going into the All-Star break. So I think it's going to help to not be on the road. And another thing, interesting thing that I saw, the Pacers are going to rank 27th in total miles traveled for this upcoming season. So that's pretty big. Yeah, that you is know, big. I, I mean, that's last year. The Pacers were towards the bottom. I want to say it might have been 26th or 27th also, and that accumulated to being like 10,000 less miles traveled than the top team. Yeah, and I think, honestly, it's part of where they live, too. Like, location-wise really matters. Yeah. Some of these teams that are on the East Coast, West Coast, they're going to travel more because they're, you know, where they're at. And you also got to remember, like, Indiana doesn't have, like, one of the most famous arenas ever like Madison Square Garden, these kind of places. Yeah. So there's not like a bunch of big venues that are happening where these teams have to be on the road as much as the Pacers don't have to be on the road as much as teams like the Spurs and the Rodeo and Golden State, the Lakers, Clippers, all that fun stuff. But, yeah, what you're mentioning here, so, yeah, January 29th, the Pacers are at home against Chicago, and they only have one road game on January 5th, which is the home-and-home home with Toronto. That'll um, That'll be a road game until they get back on – February 21st for their game at New York coming after the All-Star break. And that's just a really nice little stretch there where they're going to get some nice chances to get some wins at home. And really the only team that looks tough um, at that point, you know, Toronto might be okay. I'm not really going to be as worried without Kawhi. You got Milwaukee, obviously, to end that little homestand there. You got at, uh, at home against Brooklyn. You know, New Orleans isn't a team that I'm super concerned about. I think they'll be good, but I think they're a little overhyped right now because everybody's excited about the Zion experience. But, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, this schedule, it's 41 at home, 41 on the road. It doesn't really matter that much. I just want to see the Pacers start to gel and click right around that All-Star break with Oladipo, get some momentum, let that break kind of be good for them, and then just boom. When they get the road, they got a tough little road stretch there because they got, 
uh, I think it looks like seven of the next nine on the road. So they're going to have to be ready to go come out of All-Star break. And I'll be interested to see if they make any moves because I do think there's a possibility they will make a trade this year around the trade deadline. I, I firmly believe that that is a possibility. And the big question mark on if they are going to make a move is if they're going to lock up Sabonis. Yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of the thing. That's, that's the elephant in the room right now that's hanging above people's head of, are we going to lock him up before the season starts? Because if not, then it does look like he could be packaged with someone else. Uh, yeah, I mean, to me, I think they're going to ride this out. I can't see them not extending him. I really believe it's going to get done before the season starts. Just because, look at next year's free agent class. It is horrible. And yeah. you do not want Sabonis to be given a contract that the Pacers won't match. They have to immediately uh, get that extension done. I, I don't want them to wait any longer. Just get it done, get it over with and deal with it. I mean, if he's not great this year, you can still trade him in the summer. It's not that big of a deal. So, um, But anyway, Fachi, uh, after seeing the schedule, what are you predicting record-wise? How many wins? I, th- uh, I think the Pacers could be right around that. It's, it's, I don't want to say 48 again because that would be the third straight it. year at 48. Uh, I'm going to say – I'm gonna say 49 just to be hopeful. Give me, give me 49. I'm tired of 48. All right. And if Oladipo can come back even sooner, then we're pushing 50. Okay. I love it. I love it, man. I said 47 yesterday on the podcast that I guest uh, appeared on. So I'm gonna stick with 47 just because I think there's a lot of changes, a lot of unknowns, and I think that we could really just. It's gonna be weird. I don't know how to explain my pick, but I just think that we might lose a game. It's not that big of a deal. I think 46 to 50 is the range for me for how many wins they get. I went 47. I think they'll be a little bit worse in the regular season just because so much change is coming. And I think they might get hot late. So that's kind of my thought. But anyway, let's wrap this segment up and uh, let's bring on our featured fan of the week. Joining us right now on the line is our featured fan of the week. It is Ed Lolly. You can follow him on Twitter. At the source ninety four, Ed. Thanks so much for joining us, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I got to know when you became a Pacer fan. You you live in Philadelphia right now, I believe. So um, you message me sometimes on Twitter, just ask me Pacer questions, and you give me your hypotheticals and thoughts. I want to know when you became a Pacer fan and how it all happened. It all happened one night when I was in my bed in June of ninety four, and Reggie was just torching the Knicks uh, and going at Spike. And then, you know, that's what actually honestly put me, the Pacers, on my radar. Because at the time, you know, I'm a teenager, so I was kind of like a fly-by-night sports fan. I didn't become a fanatic until, like, 94 when I got into high school. So, it, which sealed it. I mean, the next year, I'm like, you know, I'm all in on the Pacers. You know, 14, you jump teams, you know, like kids do today. Right. But in 95, you know, it sealed the deal with the 8.9 seconds. And then from there, um, you know, um, I believe in 96, Reggie had got hurt with the eyes. Yep. And in 97, we didn't make the playoffs. And then 98, the push off on Jordan, you know, so um, I've been, you know, ride or die Pacer fan since 94. And that's pretty much what did it. And I thought I was kind of smart because I'm looking at how the Pacers was con- constructed. You know, Donnie Walsh was putting the team together. I'm like, well, we're going to have to crack this championship at one point. And it was just a small market because as time went on, I started to appreciate, you know, Reggie, that whole deeper meaning with Reggie versus the Knicks, you know, and, to this day, I just don't like how the uh, you know the NBA in general just shoves the big markets down your throat. So, you know, no one knows about the Pacers or claims to forget about the Pacers until it's playoff time or is or or it's time for you know David to meet Goliath. I love it, Ed. You know, I think uh, you and I have kind of similar stories. I'm actually from New York, but I grew up loving the Pacers from those series against New York. I just felt like there was just something that really attracted me to the team, and I knew that, hey, I can't root for these Knicks. These Pacers, they just keep coming back. So, you know, just what you're talking about, the, you know, the, the eight points in nine seconds, everything about it, just those were the times that I knew, hey, I, I, I might live in New York, but I'll never root for this team. So 
compared to, to now, what are your thoughts? What's Ed's thoughts on the Pacers offseason? We were talking about Malcolm Brogdon briefly. Have you really warmed up to the idea that, hey, I think we got our new point guard? Yes, because ultimately, um, and, and, and you know, I'm going to say something real truthful here. Very breaking news here. And that is for about five to ten seconds when Woj dropped that bomb that uh, Rubio was going to Phoenix, for them five or ten seconds, I kind of wanted Rubio because I didn't want to be left at the altar. But in truth, when, you know, a few minutes passed and we learned that um, Brogdon was the guy, ultimately I came back to the original reason why I was, uh, you know, blowing Alex up and kept tweeting him behind the scenes. And, and that is, you know, it's just a certain person um, that has to, you know, as far as free agency, come to Indiana. You know, and ultimately looking at in hindsight, I'm not sure about talent level, but uh, Brogdon compared to um, uh, Russell, it's just a better fit. You, we don't want to be going through – the Paul George thing, you know, ever again. No matter whose fault it was, it's just that we never want to be in that position where someone is uh, a star or, or or a part of our team is ultimately looking elsewhere. And, uh, you know, that was a one and done for us, and I think we, we came out on top. But Brogdon is a perfect fit. He's a combo guard. I think he's better than um, – you know, George Hill, you know, when George Hill came as far as a combo guard, I think he can score a little bit better. And I just think the fit with him and Depot, um, hopefully Depot comes back, you know, um, healthy and everything. I think that's really going to be a problem in the East. Um, uh, you know, it's a question mark about this year, but definitely next year I'm going to be uh, pumping my chest out. Absolutely. So my last question for you, Ed, is where do you think the Pacers finish out uh, standing-wise in the regular season? Right now, I have them at third. Okay, right now, like third. Um, um, third, um, I, you know, all respect to, you know, the Sixers and, and the Bucks. After that, um, I it's think we're right there with it. Yeah, it's, it's definitely up for grabs. And if Depot comes back, you know, healthy or better than ever, I think we're going to surprise one of them to uh, the top two seeds. And, and lastly, even with that, I would rather be the third seed until – you know, the playoffs start and then, you know, surprise them then. Um, mm-hmm. But ultimately, I do think, um, as we briefly talked in the past, I think ultimately we're, we're probably still one more piece away uh, before, you know, we really is, is, is challenging. But I think this going to be the, like, maybe like the 94 year where we pop up and, and, and shock everybody and go to the Eastern Finals. At least that's what I'm hoping. <laughs> Yeah, I'm all the way in June. Oh, oh, hey, I'm with you. I'm with you right here. (laughs) This this is the year. I mean, we're going to take that step forward. I'm tired of getting out in the first round. But, Ed, I want to know, who do you think takes the biggest step forward on this Pacers roster this year? Uh, Well, let me – can I just re-change the question and think uh, who needs to take the biggest step for me? How about you do both? Okay. I think who takes the biggest step, honestly, is Sabonis. But I'm not sure, you know, we're still out on the fit. But ultimately, I think he takes the biggest step. But I need Miles to take that big, that next step. Okay. That, that's going to put us over the hot, or, or possibly over the hump and keep us well in the mix officially until uh, Depot gets back. So I, I really hope uh, he learns from the USA, but I hope he yep. doesn't come back, you know, fatigued and everything like that, and in one piece. Uh, but I, I really need him to take that that, that next step. That, that's definitely true. So, Ed, we really appreciate you coming on and being our featured fan of the week. And we're going to ask this to all of our fans when we close out the show or the segment with them, but what is your favorite part of setting the pace? Uh, the interaction, uh, more so with the fans, but the questions that you guys, it, it appears that you really look and listen to the questions and the theories and the hypotheticals that's put out there on Twitter, and you guys kind of address it. And most of the time, when you do address it, you give not only different insight and make you say, hum, um, analysis, but you also 
a lot of times offer stuff you know you didn't know. Like, and you know, it's just good context all the way around. Good context. We appreciate that, Ed. Absolutely. And yes, what, no what has been your so, favorite former player that we've had on as well? Uh, former player? Uh, the most recent, uh, Al Jefferson was pretty telling. Yeah, you know, he was I, pretty I cool, like, wasn't he? I like that. Yeah, I like Al. Um, but it just seems like all anybody who played for the Pacers are just pretty cool. Uh, you know, they have right. that, that aura about them, that fit, you know, and that's real nice. Uh, that's just real nice. Absolutely, uh, I think so. Yeah, I'll said it best when uh, when he was saying he was like, "Man, when the Pacers give you a call, they don't need to say much more. That's an honor." <laughs> and those are the kind of guys that you want to bring in Indiana. Yep, and that's yeah, that's the, that's definitely the type because uh, you know I had that one uh, experience. Uh, I had that photo up there for a while until Paul George left us. But the quick story behind that, uh, me meeting Paul George, was that um, I had got a Christmas present to. The, um, the Wizards playoff game. And I told my family, I said, you don't got to get me now for Christmas. I just want to go to a Pacers away playoff game. And it so happened to be the Wizards. And um, me and my uh, wife went down to the uh, to, to the game in Washington. We drove from Philadelphia to Washington. And, um, you know, we had good seats. I actually, I was a few feet away from uh, Larry Bird and, and Donnie Walsh at that game. Mm-hmm. I believe it was game it was either game one or two. It was on a Friday night leading up to Mother's Day. Needless to say, you know, we, you know, I'm representing the Pacers. Not, not overly, but I'm representing, you know, clapping, standing up for the intros and stuff like that. And when the game was over, the um, usher had um, asked me, just came up and asked, did I want to meet the players? So, I mean, I'm thinking, like, what is she talking about? And she said, here, you know, here's some tickets. They gave me two tickets. I mean, we had to wait a minute. But um, I wound up meeting Vogel, Lance, Hibbert, David West was real nice, and then Paul George and George Hill came out. And um, I wound up meeting them. And my point is, you know, all of them were very nice. As long as you had on Pacer gear. David West, it was a guy that had on Wizards gear, was trying to get his autograph, but he just flagged them and kept moving. <laughs> but uh, they were all very – yeah, real story. But um, they were all very nice. And Louis Scola. I met Louis Scola. Actually, he was oh. the first one that had came out. I guess no interviews or nothing. But – um. It was good. I and mean, then my wife wanted to take me to the Mother's Day game. And I'm like, no, we're not going to be able to beat this experience. This is going on. <laughs> Absolutely. Man. Like well, Ed, we really appreciate you coming on and being our feature fan of the week. You guys can once again follow Ed on Twitter at the source 94 Ed, pleasure talking to you, man. Thanks a lot, Ed. Thank you for having me. All right. Bye-bye. All right, Fachi. Well, that does it for another episode here of Setting the Pace on PacersTalk.net. Make sure you give us a rating and review on iTunes. We are on Spotify now. Make sure you check us out on Spotify. We're on pretty much any place you look for podcasts. Now, we've make, made sure that we've got all those platforms available for you. And uh, until next time, we'll talk to you later. So let's go Pacers. Pacer Nation, we'll peace out. Let's go Pacers.